0: Good morning. Turn with me, if you will, please, to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. I teach for a living. One thing I like is I teach how to work with my hands. I like working with my hands, so When I'm teaching how to work with my hands, I'm teaching what I like. But part of my teaching has to do with a little bit of theory before you come to the hands-on. And uh, this last week I was, I had a mixed class. I was teaching glazers, floor covers, painters and tapers. And so I have to vary my teaching how it applies to each one of those trades. And so I was looking down on the ground and I see there was some VCT tile on the ground spread out throughout the floor, and I asked if it was square, and they all said yes. And I said, how do they know it? Well, it looks square. Well, I said, well, let's say you're just laying down that floor tile, and you want it square. How are you going to make it square? Of course, some wise, crack glazier said, start off with square walls. (laughs) You don't have that luxury sometimes. So I proceeded to teach them about the Pythagorean theorem. You might have heard of it, A squared plus B squared equals c squared in a right triangle and i went over what a right triangle was and it wasn't just good enough to say okay see there you go now you can do it right and they were going huh they want to see well hands on how does that i got my hands you know i got my tape measure i got my toolbox bucket whatever how do i do it give me the hands on and of course it was easy to apply it because these vct were 12 inch squares so i said you just Strike a line even with the wall, go over three squares, mark a line. You start from there, go up four squares, mark an arc, or four feet on your tape measure. And then go over to this one and strike an arc at five feet, and wherever that meets, draw your line straight, and that's square. Oh, it's that easy? Yes, yeah, that easy. You just need a tape measure and a pencil. <laughs> so it was taken theory and put it into practice. And it's neat to see their eyes light up. Oh, wow oh, that's cool. That's a tool I could use. You know? One thing I appreciate about the Word of God, especially the book of Ephesians, God gives us not only you know, the what, but the how. Not only the position, but the practice. And He puts it in nuts and bolts, hands-on things that we can get a grasp on. The position part, that's pretty lofty. <laughs> the practice part is down to earth. We can, we can understand that. And so we're going to talk about that because the first cha- three chapters of Ephesians are really practical, our position, where God lays out what He's done for the believer, what He is in Christ. You look at who you are in the first three chapters, and then four to six, how you should act based on who you are. And so when we get to um, chapter four, that's what we're talking about. We're at the latter, latter end of chapter four, granted, but i just like to go back and just really uh, refresh our memories on who you are. Now, I'm talking to the believer. I'm not talking about everybody in this room because I don't know where you stand with Christ. I'm talking about the person that knows they have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They have met Him. And I'm not talking about walking on the street. It's a spiritual meeting where you know that you came face-to-face with God without seeing Him but by faith. And when you open up the Word of God or someone opened it up for you, you realize God is speaking to me directly and personally, and He has a message for me, one that I need to hear, one I need to accept, coming to God on His terms. Once I have been in that place and accepted God on His terms, received the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, there's a spiritual transaction that takes place that oftentimes can be described um, with the creature, the caterpillar. The caterpillar, when he spins a cocoon, there's a trans- transformation that play- takes place in the cocoon. He metamorphosizes, if that's a word or not, I don't know. It's metamorphous, I know that. <laughs> and he goes from being a caterpillar, earthbound, crawling among the leaves, eating leaves, to a beautiful butterfly with wings in which he can take off and soar toward the heavens there's a transformation that takes place in a person's life when they really truly meet the lord jesus christ and accept him and so a lot of people i mean i i just heard the other day somebody said they were a christian and they thought they were a christian since they were born that can't be according to the scripture okay it takes a meeting with the lord jesus christ where a sinner realizes they're lost without a savior And then they meet the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came down to die for them on the cross at Calvary. And then they realize for the first time, that's what I deserve. He did it for me. Salvation is a free gift, and you accept Him as your Lord and Savior. Accept what He did on the cross for you. And it's not just an intellectual assent. It's not not, not just an intellectual understanding. It's, it's, more, it's more like you're, you meet someone that proposes to you to be married. <laughs> will you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes, I will. And that's when that takes place. That's when he becomes your Lord and Savior. And that's a transformation that takes place in you that's like that butterfly. And in the first three chapters, it describes it. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I don't fault you but you need to know Him. And don't misread into these verses something that you might think you have when you don't have you don't know Him. This is speaking to those that know Him, that transformation that takes place. It says in the first chapter of Ephesians that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's incomprehensible. It says we were chosen in Him before the foundations of the world. God had this planned way before the world came into being. He chose us in Him. We're holy and blameless before God. Now, the person that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, he can't say that, I'm holy and blameless before God. Quite the contrary. Before I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, I was guilty, unholy, defiled. I was reprehensible in my sins in God's eyes. I don't care what the world says. I don't care who they compare you to. The worst of criminals. You still can't be considered good in God's eyes because He doesn't compare you to such sinners. He compares you to the perfection of His Son. It says, for that person that bows the knee at the cross at Calvary, they're adopted as sons of God, adopted into the family of God, redeemed by His blood, forgiven, bought back, forgiven of all our trespasses. It says we've inherited, uh, we've obtained an inheritance. We even get an inheritance. And he predestined us to this purpose. It says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God gives a down payment as a pledge. That's the Holy Spirit. That means if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. They say the most miserable person on earth is the Christian outside the will of God. (laughs) Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit resides within the Christian. When they're outside of the will of God, you grieve the Spirit of God. And do you think if He's grieved, you're going to be happy? Not if you're a true Christian. Not if you're a true Christian. He takes up residence. It says that you're God's own possession. And a prized possession at that. He paid a high price for you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, my greatest possessions besides, um, of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, my family members, but My possessions for me in a mundane world setting are my tools and these hands that can use them. Do you think I take care of my tools? I don't leave them out in the yard to get rusted. They're all there, hanging up in their proper place. And when I need them, I know right where they're at. Right? Well, it says that the Christian is the possession of God. Do you think he's zealous to protect his possession, to care for, to guide and direct? You bet he is. You just look at what he paid for you. No longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints who are God's household. So, new citizenship. And I know there's a lot of people trying to get in the United States. A friend of mine got in through a lottery. There's so many people getting in that they have a lottery for it. You take all these applicants, pick numbers, and you get to come in. Well, that's not so with God. He's got enough room for everybody. But only one way in through the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, we're fellow heirs and members, fellow members of the body of Christ. That's one thing I love about the Word of God. It's it's replete with illustrations. The body of Christ. Christ being the head, those that receive him being the members of his body. Now, it it talks about the, the, the case of the Bible that everybody loves themselves. right? You love yourself, don't you? I think you do. in in, in the way I'm going to say. I'll bet everybody here this morning has taken, well, I don't want to take anything for granted. They've taken a bath or a shower in the last week, I'd say that for sure. Either that or we would know it, even from here, right? You washed up. You groomed yourself. You put on clean clothes. You probably ate breakfast. You probably ate dinner last night. You take care of yourself. Why? Because you like yourself, you love yourself, you love your body. God gave it to you, so you take care of it. Hopefully you take care of it. Well, how much more does he take care of his body? It says the Christians are a part of the body of Christ, and he cares for his body. So that's a wonderful thing, to know that you're a part, a member of a body of Christ that he cares for, okay? Okay. And it says at the end of chapter 3, before we get into chapter 4, for this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You might know the love of God for you. You know, when you come to know the love of God for your soul, when you come to know Him, you realize there's a whole new meaning in life. Everything changes. Your values change. The direction of your life changes. Um, Your Affections change. What you like to do and what you now no longer like to do changes. My life changed just like any Christian's life changes. People that knew me then, they can't believe how I live now. And people know me now, can't believe how I lived then. It was like a different person. It was a different person. The scripture says that if you're in Christ, you're a new creature old things have passed away behold new things have come so if you haven't become a new creature and you're under the misunderstanding that you think that you know the Lord Jesus Christ that's not a biblical a biblically defensible position it's not what the bible says the bible says that if you're a caterpillar and you have wings you're going to do what you're going to fly You're not going to crawl around on the ground in the leaves, buried underneath the leaves, crawling in and out. Butterflies don't do that. Why? Because they've been changed. Different purpose, different design, different desire, different longing. He knows he was meant for the sky, not the ground. Just like the Christian knows he was meant for something else. And so those changes, some of those changes can be counterfeited. I remember, I mean... I didn't smoke cigarettes before I was saved. I remember I used to swear. And I remember when I used to swear, before I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, I tried to stop swearing several times. Some of those efforts were pretty good efforts. didn't last very long. (laughs) Because I forgot about the effort, and I just reverted back to my nature, what I did all the time by nature as a reflex, as a reaction. Next thing you know, a few days later, maybe a week later, that's right, whatever happened to that uh, goal, that went down the tube. Why? Because I couldn't change my nature. I couldn't change who I was. But when someone comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a transformation that takes place. There's a new nature. Noah had mentioned it last week. He talked about the divine nature that God puts in the child of God. It's a divine nature. It comes from God. It's different than our human nature, our sinful nature. And we see that in the last two verses in chapter uh, right before we get into our verse, and that's, um, I think, 23 and 24. Let me see if I have it here. Here we go. It says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of defeat, and then the lust of de- deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which, in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. The scriptures talk about an old self, a new self, an old nature, a new nature. Now, when a person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, they are they're given a new nature. But the thing that God did is He left the old nature there for the time being. And so, so in the Christian, and Paul talks about that, so there's this constant conflict and struggle between the desires of the old nature and the desires and longings of the new nature. And if you're not Christian, if you're not a Christian, you're not going to understand that because you don't experience that struggle. That's not to mean that you don't experience guilt. That's not to mean that you don't experience conviction. When God's trying to convict you that you're a sinner and you need a savior, that's not to say that doesn't happen, but it's not the same thing as the two natures that reside within the believer, okay? The new nature, old nature, sometimes called the new man, the old man. And there's a struggle there. And God, in his wisdom, saw fit to leave that struggle for the time being. And so can the Christian sin? Yes. When he does, who's he listening to? The old nature or the new nature? old nature. It's interesting because it says the old nature is being corrupted. That's present tense. It's not like I can put it on the shelf, it's going to stay that bad and not get any worse. It wants to get worse. Sin doesn't remain at a plateau. It likes to get worse and worse and worse. And so I have to be careful. Okay, so with that background, old nature, new nature... The position that God's given us. I should say, by the way, that whereas before the Bible speaks that we're slaves to sin, that when the old nature came calling, we had to obey the lust of the flesh, pride of life. We had to obey because we were slaves to sin. That's what the Bible says. We might not sin in this one particular area, but we'll sin in another. Whatever the inclination of our sinful nature directed, that's where we went. Now, with a new nature... God's given us the power over the old nature, the power to say no, where I didn't have that before. And so we need to exercise that power because God, it says, if you were to say, well, who lives the Christian life? Is it you or God? What would you say? You know, the, the, the real easy biblical answer is, well, Christ lives in me. But you know, He doesn't do it against your will. And your will's required in the battle. He will not give you the power without you taking hold of it, exercising it. Same thing with salvation. It says we were chosen before the foundations of the world, but it still requires an act of the will on our part to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's some misguided souls in different parts of the world that they, they, they focus on one without the other. And if you ask them if they're saved yet, and they say, no, not yet. Well, what are you waiting for? Well, I'm waiting to see if I'm chosen before the foundations of the world. Well, you're going to be waiting a long time. Of course, the answer is, well, you'll, you'll know for sure just accept Jesus Christ, <laughs> right? It takes an act of the will. And so you're going to see that these items that it's talking about, it's, it requires an act of our will. It, it requires us to call on the Lord Jesus Christ for the power that He's promised us. Okay, so... You can't separate the two, the position and the practice, okay? If, you know, I had a discussion with someone we were talking about, well, can you tell if somebody's a Christian? Well, we're going to learn from the Scripture that position, practice go hand in hand, okay? As a matter of fact, it goes so far as to say he who practices sin doesn't know the Lord. The practice of the Christian is, should be one of pleasing the Lord, should be one of following the Lord, should be one, like we sang, of holiness, purity. And we're going to see well, what that means in a hands-on way in this, in this text. Um, but make no mistake about it, by and large, it can be clear if someone to say, I, 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 I mentioned I can go to work and I can tell you who's not a Christian. I know because I know they're my co-workers. I know what they talk about. I know what's on their mind. I know what they don't do, and what they don't do is live or fly as if they had wings. <laughs> they don't do that. When I mention the Lord, they have no clue some things I'm talking about, and if they knew the Lord, they would. There's no fellowship of the Spirit. Now, there are some, obviously, that it's difficult to tell, but by and large, I don't think it is. You can't separate the two. If you're a believer, you've got to live like a believer, or you will live like a believer, just like a butterfly is going to fly. Okay. Um, it says, in, I already mentioned Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. How is it that you recognize a Christian? You know, when you act like Christ, people are going to say, "Wow, that's different." Wow, that's different. And that's because you're living your life to please God. And there's not a lot of people doing that, certainly not unsaved people. Okay. Two natures, and they war against one another. I have verses for you. That Afterwards, if you'd like, I can give them to you, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into all of them. Let's get right into our text. 25, Verse 25. I'll read all seven verses, and then we'll go back over them. Okay, now, the context is that this is what God's given you, this is position. He's given you the nature. He's given you the power to live this way. Now, live this way. Now, that'd be pretty ridiculous if he told us to live some, such a way that we couldn't, right? Unless it was to show us that we couldn't. But that's not the case here, okay? It says, therefore, lay aside falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Okay, so it tells us some things, too. These are the nuts and bolts. This is the hands-on stuff. Pretty easy to understand, isn't it? You might ask your question, well, why are we told to do that if we're going to do it naturally? (laughs) Well, because for one, we've been years and years in practice doing these things. And change doesn't always happen overnight. Some of the big changes oftentimes can when I stop swearing. I stopped swearing, and like I said, I tried several times before that. I couldn't do it. When I became a Christian, stopped. And I didn't even try. It must have been God doing it because I had no need for it. My exclamation points no longer went to that vocabulary. It was like, wow. how that hurt. But that was it, you know? And and so I give credit and glory to God because He made it happen. And of course, I was pleased because to me it was a verification that I am indeed a new creature. I had tried several times before, couldn't do it. But when I surrendered to Christ, He, he did it, you know. Um, there's a change. Therefore, lay aside falsehood. Speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. You know, it's interesting, it says you know, and and I don't know if a lot of people know this. If you're a Christian, you should know it. It talks about the description of people that go to heaven and the description of people that go to hell. Now, people aren't going to heaven because they do those things. They do those things because they've been given a new nature, which God's going to take to heaven. That's just an indication of the life within them. But the people that are going to hell, they're doing those things according to their nature as well. The difference is there's a penalty for those things and for the person that's sinner that they are. And so who do you think is going to hell? What do you think describes a person that's going to hell? And if I were to ask one of my workmates or students, it would, they, to them it would probably be, oh, that's an easy question. Well, who would it be? They would be like murderers, yeah, kidnappers, yeah, uh, extortionists, yeah. I mean, there's a whole area that they wouldn't even touch on. Because in our school, we have a sexual harassment policy, so you can't touch on those people. But the Bible's clear who's going to hell. And there's a list of them. But one of them they never get. One of them they never get. And uh, it says it in Revelation 21. It says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars wow their part will be in the lake of, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death liars go to hell I didn't say it the scripture says it I'm just repeating it have I lied in the past yes I have what was the penalty for that eternal damnation will I pay it no because Jesus paid it for me praise the Lord Maybe you're here. I I would wager to say there's no one in this room that has not lied. I mean, that's the cold, hard fact. So you're a liar, like I'm a liar. And I don't mean to offend you, but there's only two kinds of liars. Those that have repented and are forgiven, and those that continue on as liars. There's only one end to that according to God's standard. So, we are, it's so ingrained with us. Have you ever read the news? Lying is a part of humanity, it seems like. Look at what's happening in Washington every day. What's the truth? Everything you hear can't be the truth because they're contradictory stories. Somebody's lying, you know? Um, weapons of mass destruction. Assad in Syria. Did he or didn't he? was it the rebels or was it his forces they both can't be right somebody's lying right and so lies happen in the highest corridors of power down to the three-year-old child that said i didn't do it i didn't need it i didn't take it that's one thing you don't have to teach a child to do is lie right how many parents we have in the room not many thanks luke well, you know this already, but you're going to experience it, is that you're not going to have to teach your son to lie. Somehow he's going to figure that one out on his own, like I did. Liars don't go to heaven. But what's interesting, you know what's interesting is when you read the scriptures and you know the little, notice the little words, and it says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. It's talking about Christians with Christians, right? Be truthful. You know? And sometimes we, we're so used to be on guard, our defense is up, I don't want to show my vulnerability, I don't want to show my weakness. You know? When have I talked to somebody the last time I heard, you know what, I'm, I'm really discouraged or I feel hurt because of what you said. I, I, you know, I can say things that hurt people, I oftentimes do, not meaning to, but how refreshing it is to, um, to hear, you know what, you really hurt me. That would be the truth. And if I didn't mean to do it, I could apologize and I could heal that wound as best I could, right? But we don't do that because we don't want to seem weak. We're afraid a person might react the wrong way. But Christians shouldn't worry about that. And here's our example. You know what our example is here? One word. (laughs) Well, it says members. The idea is we're members. It's not talking about members of the church together. The idea is we're members of the body of Christ, right? Right? Now think of that, ex- that, that example that we have. Think of where we, would, where we would be, or what life would like would be like if your body parts, your members, lied to one another. like your eyes lying to you. You know? You're about ready to cross the street, a car's coming and your eyes lie to you. That could be disastrous, right? I, I never thought about it before I read, read this passage. How much do we depend on our body parts being truthful with one another? Now, we're, it, the Scripture's personifying this. And I know it sounds ridiculous because they're not persons, but think if they were right? What if your uh, one part of body told your other your part of your body, you know what? Uh, your sugar level is really, really high when it's low. Your body puts out a lot of insulin and you go into coma, right? <laughs> I mean, it could be disastrous I mean, on, on all fronts, right? Your hand's on a burner and, I mean, it's melting. And your, your nerve cells, they're, they're lying to you. It doesn't really hurt. You don't even feel it. Let's just cut off communication. You're, you won't even know it. Of course, it has to have cooperation. It has to be conspiracy because your nose has to also lie. Yeah, you don't smell burning flesh. No, you know? Think about it. I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous, but what what is it like in the body when one person is not truthful to another? It has its effect. What it does is it, it tears down the unity of the body, and it would destroy your body if that was the case. If your body parts sent out wrong signals, lied, uh, it would. It, there's there's so many complications you can't even imagine. And so that's what the scripture points out as a motivation to us. You're members of the body. Be truthful, you know? Now, what would it be like if you were just really transparent and truthful and there was a person that didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ and they saw you interacting with another Christian on that level? They'd go, wow. You have a special relationship here, don't you? This usually doesn't happen, you know? I don't do it. I don't know anybody that does. And yet you guys communicate in such a way that like, you know, it's like there's no inhibition, no, that's not the right word, no no barrier between you. You guys are totally honest with each other. Yeah, why not? You know, why not? We don't have anything to hide, right? It's all been, all been exposed and healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I can remember one time I was in a warehouse, and I looked, I was working in the warehouse, and I'm looking down the side, I hear a bink, and I look down, and then, you know, I'm looking down and it's sort of dark down there, and I'm used to looking out in the light, so a dark warehouse. And there's five tiers of pallets of toothpaste. It's on Cabot Boulevard, the J&R warehouse on Cabot. And all of a sudden, these things start falling off the walls. I mean, pallets of toothpaste. You're talking about thousands of pounds in one big pile, just oozing mess, right? And the bad part about it was Colgate Palmolive, and they were coming that weekend to do inventory. It's like, whoa. And then somebody said, did anybody see who did that? And I could have sworn my eyes told me, you know, there was a forklift right there before. And I remember seeing the guy on it. But then I'm looking down there, there's a closed aisle way. He he would have been on the other side. And as soon as that happened, we went over by the pile. And I looked over the other side, I didn't see anything. And I'm thinking, my eyes must be playing tricks on me. You know, have you ever thought you saw something and then it it turns out maybe you didn't? I thought that was one of the the cases this time. Until I was there and I saw up this other aisle, this guy, the very same guy that, that was on the forklift in my, eye, in my eyes that I saw, he was driving down the other corridor. See, it couldn't have been him. He's down in the other part of the warehouse, right? And then we were cleaning up and I went, I walked, I, it just did, I didn't sit right with me. So I walked all the way down the corridor and, you know, it had big giant racks up to the ceiling here and then a concrete wall with racks mounted and that's what came off the wall. And I'm walking and you know how you have slot for pallets, 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 well, you walk down here, and two slats were taken out to where you can drive a forklift through there. I'm going, my eyes were bright. They didn't lie to me, you know, that he was him. You know, by that time it was too late because everybody asked, Did anybody see it? And I said, No. Now I realized, it. I'm back, he did it. How do you know I didn't? I didn't do it, you know. Of course, he lied. So, body parts, they don't usually lie to one another. And Christians shouldn't either. It says in Ephesians twenty six twenty seven, 27, be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil opportunity. You know, there's different kinds of anger. The scripture, I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ got angry. He got angry because the Pharisees and the religious hypocrites were mad that Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. He got, it said he got angry with them. So if the Lord Jesus Christ gets angry at someone, is anger sin? Not necessarily. It can be sin. So we need to distinguish a difference. What was the difference? I think when, it, the word isn't used, but I think when he turned over the money tables in the temple, the people that were changing money, he turned them all over and he got a little whip and he got them all out of there. And Because they turned his father's house into a house of merchandise. That made him mad. But in a good way. And so how do we distinguish between righteous anger and unrighteous anger? Usually righteous anger has to do with righteous indignation when a wrong is done, especially toward the name of God or toward another, you know? If I'm angry because somebody's insulted me, that's not, I'm not worried about I'm worried about me. That was a personal offense. That's sin. Right? Uh, Somebody said something, slandered me, I'm mad. That's anger because I'm the injured party. The Lord Jesus Christ never was angry at himself being injured. It was the Father's name that was being maligned. It was the woman that was needed healing that they didn't want her to be healed. His heart went out to her. His anger was focused at those that would harm her. And so that's a big clue to us, you know, When, like, we we hear that in in Syria there were so many, you know, 1,400 people killed by a chemical attack, right? That, you know, should cause us a little bit of righteous anger. Those people were killed. They were innocent people killed. Who did it? Who knows? But that's not an unrighteous anger. So when it says, do not let the Son, go down on your anger. I don't think it's talked about. And this, it's not that you can't apply it this way. Sometimes people get in arguments. <laughs> and sometimes there's an offense or anger, but it's because I'm angry that they offended me. You know? It's good not to let your son go down on that anger, but that's already sin. But the other one where you're, if you're upset because someone else has been injured, that's a righteous anger. But if you've you got to be careful. You let it go too far, it could turn into sin. You can start stewing on that. You could start, they have this, I don't know where these expressions come, but I keep hearing them from my students. You start hating on them, you know, like that, hate on somebody. Can you believe that? It's not even proper English, but sometimes you've got to speak that way to your audience, not here, but in my work, so I'm just sharing it with you. You start being angry with that person because of what they did. Next thing you know, this has become sin in your heart. And so you can keep, see, keep short accounts with God, you know? Leave it with the Lord, you know? Um, don't repay evil for evil. And so the Lord gives us direction, and that's how Christians should be, yeah? That was wrong what they did. It was unrighteous. Yeah, it makes me angry, but I'm not going to stay angry because it might lead to sin. Okay, so um, practical stuff, isn't it? That's why I call it hands on stuff. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. It says, even the best motivated anger can sour. And we are therefore to put it aside at the end of the day, not giving the devil an opportunity. You see, he can take that righteous anger, and if we stew on it, he can turn it around into sin. And he wins that way, he gets the victory. And, and, and then we're just being like everybody else, right? I think that the key here is when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ, He makes us a new creation. He's in the business of making us more like Him. Why? Because He's the perfect one. Anybody that doesn't have the desire to be like the R- Lord Jesus Christ has some kind of desire for imperfection. <laughs> you know, we'll never arrive at perfection, but the more we become like the Lord Jesus Christ, the more the world's going to say, wow, That's cool, compassionate, forgiving, angry at the right things, but doesn't stay angry. Speaks truth. Hmm, how refreshing. What makes you like that? (laughs) The Lord Jesus Christ. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Stealing. You know, there's so many forms of stealing. We have, it's, it's so wrapped up in our world. It's incredible. Um, I, I just off the top of your head, you think of shoplifting, right? Shoplifting. This was 2012. Shoplifting to cost stores $9 billion this holiday season. That was 2012. So it's, it's probably up this year. A new study estimates that U.S. retailers will lose $8.9 billion this holiday season to shoplifting. Employee theft, vendor and distribution losses, according to a new study by the Center for Retail Research, 4% increase compared to last year. Holidays are a especially busy time for shoplifters. <laughs> they get real busy. Thieves take advantage of busy stores to, to steal high-value and high-demand goods. Meticulously planned capers by savvy crews of shoplifters are a new trend in theft, according to Indiana Retail Council. The cost of large-scale shoplifting ultimately are passed on to honest customers or us to honest shoppers. What we're seeing now is a sort of 21st century development in shoplifting. this guy says he's a president of the Nonprofit Trade Association for Retailers. The new trend is organized retail crime, which is very serious, where groups of people are stealing from retailers. They will go in and create a distraction in the store and clean out entire shelves or take entire racks of clothes. These people are very clever. They know the retailer. They know how to, how to essentially work around the system. It's a serious threat for retailers. He said the shopping crews typically sell their stolen goods on the street as livelihood or to finance drugs. And it's an ever-evolving enterprise. It takes numerous forms. That's, that, those are people that, you know, they're outright thieves going in for that purpose. I, I, I forget who I was talking with. I think it was... Uh, security guy at Kmart, he says there's some kinds, these guys come in three, four and five at the time and these guys are big guys, I mean monstrous guys and they'll take something and he'll go and try to confront them in the parking lot and he doesn't get too close to them before he realizes they'll just stand up to him, what are you going to do about it? Go back in the store (laughs) and there's dangerous people out there I can remember when I was in Sao Paulo on the subway and uh, you know Just It was like wall-to-wall. People had my camera right here strapped to my side with a zipper and my attaché case, like a little briefcase. I just had books in there, right? And I looked down, and I, you know, it's one of those things you can't believe what your eyes are seeing. And I see these two fingers, two little fingers on the zipper of my camera bag. I wonder, where are those fingers coming from? You know, I start looking around, you know, not trying to be too conspicuous, right? And then I sort of back up, and then they move, And they start saddling up against somebody else. And I went over to him and I said in Portuguese, watch out for your wallet. That guy looked at me and I looked at him. Then I figured out who it was. And then he he said, what are you doing looking at my girl? You know, and I'm looking. Then a girl looks at me. And that's when I really started realizing how dangerous the situation can be. These people aren't alone. She's probably ready with a knife to stab me if I grab the guy. Well, who knows who else is there. So you want to be careful. Um, there are thieves out there. But there are a lot of different forms of stealing. You know, a lot of different forms of stealing. I think I, I hear it from my students all the time, all these tricks that people play, you know, like low-cost housing. These guys sign up for, oh, girls. Their single mothers line up for low-cost housing. They move in. Then comes the boyfriend with his Mercedes-Benz and all their fancy electric stuff. And they somehow know when there's going to be an inspector come by to come inspect the place because then he moves out, just a day or two, and then he moves back in. (laughs) They're stealing from the government low-cost housing, right? When the people that really need it have a hard time getting in there, and that happens quite a bit. How about time? Can you steal time? You know that's associated oftentimes with our employment, right? When I'm uh, when I'm filling up my time card, am I being accurate? my own cell phone off here, sorry. Um, but that's not the only way in which we can steal time. Uh, um, if you're a Christian here this morning, who does your time belong to? It belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? And that's sometimes we don't often think about. Oh, Sunday I'll go to church. That's well, the Lord's Day. Okay, so... He gets three hours out of the week. That's his time. The rest is mine. He died to save us. It says we're bought with a price. When I go to work, I know full well those students are a minute late. I'm supposed to mark it down. They have somebody on the door at the door marking down who's late. If I don't mark them late, by the time he gets out of my classroom, there's going to be a comparison. How come you aren't moving these guys late? You know what that means? It means I got to be there at seven. And I'm there after hours. And if I leave early, I know I'm stealing from my employer. Real simple, right? So I don't do it. But how about the Lord's time? When the Lord wants you to do something, and you really don't have to do it, are you stealing from the Lord? No? We need to think about that. Um, Who's our time belong to? Belongs to the Lord, and and you know when, when a person honors the Lord by giving to whom it's due, whether it's time to your employer, whether it's your life to the Lord, people notice that. I can remember, you know, and and and, and how many times you go into a soup. This is interesting, Sandra. When she goes shopping, she's adding it up in her mind in the in the cart. And then when she's pulling it out, she's doing one more time. She knows within a couple dollars what that should be. You know how many times they're wrong? And I can't remember one single time in the dozens of times they were wrong that they were wrong in Sanders' favor. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? Coincidence? Could be. But every once in a while they do get it wrong and they give it in the customer's favor. I can remember one time where... I was shopping, and this happened. And we went to Canada. We went to a um, uh, what are they called? Food market things, um, fruit market, farmers market. That's it. Thank you. And people were picking fruit and eating it right up, right out of the display. I'm going, man, these guys steal like nothing, you know. And then the lady that was, you know, man in the store—that's funny. Lady that was man in the store. But um, she came out with a knife and she started slicing up fruit. And I ask her about that. Do all people steal fruit around here? She says, no, no, no. That's what we do here. You, you sample the fruit. If you like it, you buy some. If you don't, you sample another piece of fruit and you buy some of that. If you don't pick it, we'll give it to you. We'll cut it up for you if you don't, if you don't think it's clean. You know what I mean? I go, wow, that's refreshing, you know? They're not as greedy as we are. <laughs> Every little fruit. So when you take a bundle of grapes and you start eating a couple on the way to the cash register, you know what you've done, right? You've stolen and I remember I did that one time. What do you do? It's down in here. <laughs> so I got up there, and I, I took out my keys, which I knew were heavier than the grapes. I, I said, put that on the scale. I threw it on the She goes, what are you doing? I said, I ate some grapes by accident, as if I ate them by accident. I mean, I stole them by accident, right? And I want to pay for them. She goes, oh, you don't have to do that. I said, I want to. Wow, that's honest, you know? Not too many people do that. Well, the Lord moved me to do that. That was natural, natural response to the Spirit of God saying, hey, why don't you do something here? And it just might have been what that person needed to see that day that Christians are different. Don't ever forget to give glory to God when you do something like that. I'm a Christian. That's why I'm doing this. Wow. She's probably going home telling five people, you know what this Christian did? Isn't that silly? And they're thinking, wow, that's not silly. (laughs) You don't know what kind of mileage you're going to get out of that, okay? Okay. So, you're different if you're a Christian, and God's saying, you are different, now act different, and I'll tell you how. That's what I like about this. It says, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. So, there's a purpose for our labor, you know, and I think about this often. (laughs) Maybe it's because I like, I'm like the way I am, and Sandra knows it, and she doesn't like this one way I am, and that's I sweat a lot, you know. I'm I'm teaching a class. Man, you're sweating. I'm always sweating, you know. People have been doing two things ever. Men have been doing two things since the Garden of Eden. You know what they are? They have, on one side, there are those that have sweat for their bread. And then on the other side, there are those that get other people to sweat for their bread. You know? Um there's a whole, and I tell my apprentices, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are working a lot harder avoiding work than actually doing the work, you know. Work is good for you. I think of where I would be if I didn't work. I'd have all kinds of time on my hands to do no good, you know. Um, I get a little bit antsy when I'm just sitting around not doing anything. <laughs> I was talking to my mom on the phone. I sort of felt bad because I was trying to imagine this vice stand that I made. that was like, about, you know, probably a couple hundred pounds, on this cart it was falling over trying trying to talk to her on the phone finally says I got to get off the phone I'm trying to move this piece of memory she goes well don't you have speakerphone I go well but I can't put it over there and walk away from it she goes don't you have a pocket I said well if I put it in the pocket you're not going to hear me you know I I said I'm I'm not used to gabbing on the phone I'm used to talking business you know I I I call for a purpose I'm like Tom (laughs) except for he's better at it than I am you call for a purpose get off the phone done right and so my mom says, but this is the only time I have to talk to you. Oh, that hurt. <laughs> so I'm going to have to spend some time with her. But um, <laughs> uh, labor with your hands. Work. You know, and I know there's different kinds of work. Some people work very hard without perspiring. you know? But it's so that we can share with those that have need. And when I think of those that have need, I'm not thinking of the person that's standing on the corner with his little box out there with a sign that says looking for work. I remember Nathan was like seven or something, and I said, do you think that's true? He goes, doesn't look like it. Where is he looking for work? You know, he's on the corner. You know, or he's on one of those islands. I'm not talking about someone that doesn't have need. You know, there are people that work really hard at not working. That's not those people have a need. You know what it is? Get a job. They need to work, right? It's good for them. It's good for me to work. But there are some people that are very industrious, very hardworking. But for circumstances, or one circumstance or another, they have a need, and you're not going to be able to help them if you don't have a wherewithal to help them. And there's many ways to to share and to help people that have needs. Many ways, but it's pretty hard to do if you don't have a job. You, know? you don't have a job. Work hard so that you can share with him who has need. Does that glorify God? It does, doesn't it? It does. Working hard. Um, Sandra's sister has a hard time sleeping. And I know there's people having a hard time sleeping. I'm not usually one of them. And and fortunately, I'm healthy. But my solution to have a hard time sleeping, just work harder. (laughs) Drop dead from exhaustion. I mean, drop into sleep. I mean, you know. Just work hard. It does wonders for sleeping. It does wonders for your hunger. You eat well, you know. Um, so I don't mind working, and, and this one thing I learned when I worked in the warehouse, there, you know, uh, there's nothing like just getting into it, a couple hours later, job's done, you're filthy, but you got good exercise, go take a shower, you'll feel great, you know, keeps you out of trouble, keeps you out of the poorhouse, honors the Lord, it's good for you, and you have something to share with others, okay, um, I want to share with something the way I look at things and I, I, I real quick. Yeah, I wonder sometimes because you know I've been a Christian for a good many years and we enjoy something in this country and that's a tax deduction when we give. But I wonder would, would we give the same if we didn't have a tax deduction? Because I know people look for tax deductions. Maybe your income is such that you have to. But I, I look at things like this because sometimes that thought can circumvent God using you to share with someone that has a need but doesn't fit into the category of a tax deduction. So the way I think is $100, let's say, 15% tax bracket. I give $100 in something that's tax deductible, I get $15 back, right? And I understand the arguments how oh, that's good stewardship. How much reward in heaven am I going to get? $100 or 85? Government's going to get the 15, right? And I know they're not going to get a reward, but we can think of it that way. I don't get the hundred. I gave and I got fifteen back. I get the eighty five. Right? So if I give a hundred. But I don't get a tax deduction. You think the Lord's giving me a hundred dollar reward? Right? I mean that's how much I sacrificed. Uncle Sam's cut came out of it. I couldn't do anything about that. So don't, follow the Lord's direction, you know. Um, I'm upset on that. Speech. Last one, I want to, I want to, I really want to finish with this one. I got something to read you that might startle you. Um, speech, speech. It says, it says, uh, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but such is a word for edification. Is good for edification. According to the deed of the moment, then it may give grace to the hearer. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What's your language like? I'm around construction workers. What do you think I hear all day long? You know, and, and I've been blessed because for the large part it goes in one ear, out the other. You know, And um, I'm able to see what they're trying to communicate through it all and then communicate with them according to what they're trying to say rather than what comes out. I mean, I, oftentimes I said, you know what, I wouldn't have said it that way, but I agree with what you're trying to say because <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, like, I don't like to use those, that language. I don't use that language, you know. Um, but language, filthy language, you know. The word right here, it says unwholesome. It's talk about something rotten. You know, I don't like. know if you like things that are rotten. I don't. Something rotten in your refrigerator, what do you do? You toss it. If it's something particular, like meat, it's dangerous, right? So sometimes because you might be in an environment where you're hearing this, you might pick up some of that language, but that should bother the Christian. That should be particularly bothersome to Christians, and it has an effect in our society. And uh, it says right here, it says, children are swearing more often at an earlier age. According to research presented by, I can't even pronounce this, um, Socio-ling- yeah, I can. Sociolinguistic Symposium. This month, children are learning to use profanity or swearing at an early age, earlier age. And the research found children are also swearing more often than children did just a few decades ago. And then Timothy De- uh, a Apsycholo- uh, psychology professor at Massachusetts, wherever, um, he, co- he collected the, this data, and it suggests the rise in profanity among Christian is, uh, children is not surprising Given the general rise of using swearing, um, uh, use of swearing among adults during the same period, by the time some kids go to school, they're now uh, saying all the words that we try to protect them from on television. We find their swearing really takes off between ages three and four. Isn't that amazing? Kids aren't learning swearing at an, uh, kids aren't learning swearing at an early age from television they watch. The rise in cursing mirrors the rise in cursing among adults in the past 30 years that Professor Jay has been studying the psychology of swearing. It may not help that parents can sometimes be hypocritical when it comes to swearing. Nearly two-thirds of adults surveyed that had rules about their children swearing at home found they broke their own rules on a regular basis. Do what I say, not what I do, right? This sends children a mixed, confusing message about swearing and when it's appropriate. Swearing is not a trivial matter, about, occasional, uh, about an occasional profanity slip past a child's lips. Previous research into swearing has shown that a significant impact with problems at home in school and at the workplace. Similar research has shown that men swear more frequently and use more often words than women do in public. Both men and women will swear more frequently, too, in the presence of a group consisting of only their own gender than a mixed-gender group. Now, of course, Christians don't fall under these... Um, numbers, but if you have children, they're coming in contact with other children somewhere, and you can't walk down the street, in the supermarket, in a theater without hearing the way people talk. It says profanity, another article, profanity is up 69%. Four months after an appeals court struck down the Federal Communication Commission's broadcast standards, a new study showed that profanity on Broadcast television has risen nearly 70% in the past five years. The study by Parents Television Council, which compared the first two weeks of the networks in 2010 fall lineup with the two weeks in 2005 fall lineup, found that profanity increased 69%. Movies, news programs, sporting events were not included in the study. The study also reported that harsher profanities are now being used, and it added that the greatest increase in the use of harshest profanities took place during... 8 p.m. Eastern period, also known as family hour, and 9 p.m. Eastern. In July, the U.S. Second Court of Appeals ruled that the indecency policy the FCC used to monitor offensive language is unconstitutionally vague. The decision being appealed. Conservative groups at the time expressed concern that the ruling would lead to an increase in TV foul language. The statistics, statistics and examples in this study demonstrate that freed from regulation in the wake of the Second Circuit courts of the FCC powers of enforcement, the study said Hollywood's creative personnel and their TV network distribution outlets have deliberately unleashed literally unparalleled levels of profanity and graphic language upon the public. The most egregious of it is in a time slot in which children are most likely to be in the audience. The Parents Television Channel noted that the lawsuit that... Second Circuit's decision involves several instances of fleeting explicatives on TV by celebrities such as Cher, Nicole, Ritchie, and it goes on. A 69 percent increase in scripted profanity on pre-planned film entertainment is not equivalent to the coupled slips of the tongue during live events, the study said. The statistics above demonstrate that the use of such language by networks is both deliberate and pervasive. They're not talking about just, you know, live Uh Uh-oh, they said it. We didn't catch it to beep it. They're talking about planned and programmed in the language. So you see, Satan has his program. The world has their program. There's a tune that they want you to march to. And God's saying, if you're in Christ, you need to be different. You need to show the world what Christianity is all about, what knowing Christ means. It means a changed life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. It's so practical. Think of how you've given us everything we can imagine and more position, power in Christ to have victory over the sinful nature of the old man. Lord, give us the desire to renew our vigilance, to be like Christ, bring refreshment to those around us that don't see anything but profanity and filth, bad examples. Lord, help us to shine for Christ and help us to be ready not to use our mouth for profanity but to use our mouths to share the glories of Christ and the gospel of His salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.